before we get into this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I'm here to warn you that there is foul language in this passage in Inferno. If there are kids in the room or in the car with you, you might want to save this for another time. Otherwise, <laughs> here we go. We're in that second pouch. It seemed to be moldy and full of that stuff that gets slopped out of human privies. And in case you don't know what is slopped out of human privies, it's about to get explained to you. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk, as I always say, through Dante's masterwork comedy not the divine comedy. And this passage will remind you why it shouldn't be called the divine comedy. This is not a very divine passage. We are in Canto 18. We are in the eighth circle of hell, the circle of fraud. We have passed over the first pouch, which include pimps and seducers. And now we have come up on the spiny ridge and are ready to look down into the second pouch of fraud. So let's get to it. The back of the canto, 18 lines 115 through 134. And while I intently cast my gaze down in there, I saw a guy whose head was so slimed with shit that I couldn't tell if he were laity or clergy. He screamed at me, Why do you seem so hungry to look at me rather than at the rest of the bastards? And I to him, because if I remember you correctly, I've seen you before, back when your hair was dry. You are Alessio Interminei of Luca. That's why I stared at you more than the rest. He beat his pumpkin head and came back with, Oh, my flattery sunk me down here because my tongue never tired of them. Then my leader said to me, Stick out your head a little farther in that direction so that you can get a better look at the features of that disgusting, disheveled slut scratching herself with her shit-filled fingernails, now squatting down, now standing up on her feet. She's Thais, the whore. Her lover asked her, Have I gained your favor? And she said, Enough to be a marvel. And that's all our eyes need to know about her. And that's the end of Canto 18. A strange, full, even complex ending. Lots going on. The passage breaks itself neatly into two halves. And then I want to talk a couple of bits about a larger question inside the passage. So let's get started right from the top. The passage begins while I intently cast my gaze down there. And we should note, just as a side note, that our pilgrim is learning to be an observer. And I do think that there is a larger rubric here. Our pilgrim is learning to become an observer just as you are learning to become an observer or 
a reader of comedy. I think that along the way, our pilgrim gets better and better at noticing the details, at noticing what he's supposed to be paying attention to. He is looking more and more intently at what's going on. And this has been slowly happening. I mean, yes, of course, he looked intently at Francesca, but ultimately he passed out. He let his emotions override his thought processes. And by this point, our Pilgrim seems to be much more in control, and the gaze seems to be more willfully directed. Virgil is going to help him even more willfully in, what am I going to say, uh, adjust his gaze so he can see Thais, the whore, down in the pit. So all of that is, to me, indicative of our pilgrim growing, and I do think that there is an analogous move in the poem that is asking the reader to not read it with necessarily so much emotional import, the lake of the heart, to use early words in the poem, but rather to use other facilities and to correct the will so that you can gaze intently at the poem in the same way the pilgrim is correcting his will to gaze intently at the damned. All right, passing on in the passage, I saw a guy whose head was so slimed with shit that I couldn't tell if he were laity or clergy. That is, and yes, the word is just that vulgar in the Florentine, his head is so covered in this stuff (laughs) that it's impossible to tell if he's tonsured or not. And he screams out, why do you seem so hungry? More food imagery, to look at me rather than at the rest of the bastards, the bruti, the ones down here who are basically animals. We talked a little bit about this in the last podcast in which I said you should back up from Dante occasionally and say, listen, it's important not to dehumanize people, but that is Dante's game. So Dante the Pilgrim goes on, because I remember you correctly, Um, I've seen you before, back when your hair was dry. So he does have hair. Again, the question is tonsured or not. You are Alessio Interminei of Luca. Remember, I told you that we are on a pilgrimage down through the Eighth Circle across the towns of Tuscany. And here's our first Lucan. We had a Bolognese up with the pimps. Now we've got a Lucan here with the flatterers. Let's just stop on Alessio Interminei and say his last name does seem to have something to do with endlessness, Interminei, but he is most likely part of a very powerful family, Alessio is. There may be a way to nail him down. Certainly Benvenuto, the early commentator, offers a gloss on him that Basically, he was uh, incredibly flattering to everyone around him. This may, in fact, be an after-the-fact gloss. Somebody uh, like Benvenuto, who's trying to justify various people inside of comedy because mostly Alessio Interminei is lost to history. There are a couple documents, as I recall, about him um, with his name on them. He may have been alive as late as the late 1290s, but there's no indication from anything that we know that he was necessarily such a great flatterer. Maybe he was, but we don't have any record of that. And it's interesting that Alessio is lost a bit to us. Again, part of the distance in the poem, part of the distance of the poem from us, I should say, but also part of a kind of smudging here that's going on. I don't think it's intentional on the poet's part. It just plays in real 
really well with a circle full of human excrement that everything is just a little bit smudged and you can't tell what it is. I'd like to say that because the pilgrim can't tell who this really is because he's so slimed with human excrement, I'd like to say that it's intentional that then this figure is a rather hazy figure or a smudgy figure that you can't really see. But I actually don't think that that holds up historically. And I think it's pushing the poem too far, too much up into a meta level. I know you're going to be surprised, me, too much into a meta level. But I think it's pushing the poem too meta in order to make that happen. I suppose you could make the comment that this guy is so smeared up and yet we can't really tell who he is even now. And Dante's kind of picked a minor figure for this in order that he be a bit hazy and um, unrecognizable, shall we say. But I, I don't know. It seems like it's pushing it too far. He goes on and he beats his, I translated his pumpkin head. It's really, he beats his zuka. He beats his gourd. He beats his pumpkin. Again, the language is very street. It's very colloquial. It's very down. You know, calling a head a pumpkin. He beats his zuka and comes back with all my flatteries. And this is where we know where we are. All my flatteries sunk me down here because my tongue never tired of them. I, we should say right now, Virgil is not stopping and saying, behold the flatterers. Virgil is essentially letting the sinners tell their own stories, and we're discovering where we are in the this evil pouch of flattery because of what the sinners say. This is a little bit different from what has come before, and it seems to me not so much a change in Virgil's character, although you could claim that. You could claim the farther down in hell we get, the more Virgil backs off. You're going to have problems in a couple pouches ahead. But the more Virgil backs off, I've actually seen that in the commentary and seen that stated. I'm not sure I buy it. I think it's more Dante is becoming surer in the poem that he's writing. And so he's letting the sinners declare themselves and the sins they are guilty of. And thus, the uh, what do I want to say? The definition of this pouch is found inside the dialogue. That's a very writerly point. But if you were writing something and we were in a class together, I would be telling you that's a good thing. You're letting the characters explain the situation to me rather than have some kind of narrator behind the scenes tell me what's going on here. That's a more modern or even as we are moderns, a better way to write. And it could be a dawning of a more modern way of writing here to let the characters forward or carry forward the plot. All right, that's the first bit with the lessio and the slight little bits inside of it. Let's pass on to the second bit of the passage. Stick your head a little farther in that direction so that you can get a better look at the features of that disgusting, disheveled slut. Scratching herself with her, and yes, it is just this way in the Florentine, her shit filled fingernails. Now squatting down, now standing up. She seems to have, as my husband would call it, agita. She's not able to settle down. She's up and down and up and down. Or what's the other word he uses? Spielkus. That's it. She seems to have spielkus up and down and up and down. Why does she have spielkus here? <laughs> 
passage. I think it indicates her discomfort with her position. You might be able to pull this farther out. I saw a recent gloss on this that suggested syphilis and she's unable to settle. I don't know. That that seems too far to me. It seems way too far out there for me. It seems to me more that she's unable to settle down because of the absolute disgustingness of the place itself. But we should just stop and say, wait a minute, a woman... How many women have we seen in comedy? Not very many. (laughs) Francesca, way back up there. You realize that comedy is mostly full of men. In fact, Inferno particularly is mostly full of men, not women. It's a curious problem. Is it because Dante has such an overwhelming love of Beatrice? Is that why the comedy is so full of of men and not women? Is it that Dante shies away from damning women? Dante, the poet, that is, shies away from damning women. Is it that his uh, take on the feminine as a draw toward godliness, which is really Dante's take, that the feminine draws you on? Dante's take, uh, just to say as an aside, is very close to Goethe's in Faust. What is the end of Faust? That notion of the eternal feminine draws us on. I mean, we're after Faust is almost damned, and the voice comes out of heaven and says, no, not damned, you know, not verdammt, but gerettet, is saved. And Faust is saved at the very end of Goethe's Faust, and then you have this kind of final coda in which it's stated that the eternal feminine draws us on. And it's this notion that uh, it's very patriarchal, it's very male-centered, so sorry for women listeners, unless you're not straight. Uh, It's very patriarchal, it's very male-oriented. That is that the feminine is the lead to God. And you can see this as repressive, of course, and that women have to be kept in their place because they have to lead us to God and they have no other task in this world. Okay, that's the repressive patriarchal bit. Or you can say there's something for men about the women that drive them on toward God. That, in, in other words, a kind of even sexual longing for a woman is very close to what one should be feeling for God. And that's getting very close to Dante. We're going to see, especially on down the road in Paradiso, that this notion of human desire is kind of the dawning of the love of God. It is the way that you get pulled toward God. It's not a Victorian concept. Rather, it is admittedly, again, a heterosexual concept, but a concept that you are being pulled forward by, let's let's defeminize it, and say pulled forward by sexual desire. And that is the way that you actually discover what it is like to find the love of God. It's really wild point, especially post-Victorian, when we in this day and age can barely hear it, but it's still part of it. And although this doesn't have anything to do with Thais down here in hell, it does say to us that there are very few women in hell. And here's one of just a handful, just a couple of them down here. Here's Thais, the whore. So why is she here? Well, notice that she's a prostitute, a whore. The word that is actually used there is not exactly a prostitute, but it has prostitute connotations in the word in the Florentine, so I've just let it 
be fully on whore in the text. But you note that she is not damned for being a prostitute, which is very interesting. She's damned for flattery. This is different from Venedico. Venedico is damned for being a pimp. So pimps get the punishment for being pimps. But prostitutes, can we generalize this? Prostitutes don't get the punishment for being prostitutes. There is no circle of prostitution ahead. Prostitutes don't get damned for being prostitutes. This one gets damned for being a flatterer. Because when her lover asked her, we're going to talk more about this in a minute, have I gained your favor? She said, enough to be a marvel. She so overflattered him. She just poured it out, even though she had other things on her mind. And so she's damned here for her flattery. Okay, there's a couple things that are going on here. But first, I just want to back up and I want to talk about the woman question one more time. If we go back to that previous passage about Jason and Medea, where we were just a couple episodes ago, you remember Medea is given her vendetta because of Jason's damnation. What is so interesting about that and what I blipped over until I got here is that Medea is given vendetta. Vendetta is mostly a patriarchal expression of violence because of honor. And to hand Medea a vendetta is a little bit strange. You just gave this unbelievable bond of violence that occurs between men over honor and virtue in a deeply patriarchal society, you just handed it to a woman. While there are some examples of vendetta and women, it's rarely so stated. And to give Medea this loaded word, vendetta, is to honestly change the rules of the gender game. You may not have noticed it, and it's hard to see it here sitting in the 21st century, but it's kind of wild in the text, and it's kind of wild that we have seen so few women until this prostitute. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the passage in a couple of more general and speculative ways. Let's start with Thais, this person, this woman, this prostitute, sitting down here and saying um, enough to be a marvel to her lover. This is an incredibly garbled bit here. And I want to say that I like that it's garbled for a reason, but I'm going to give you the garbling first. This is actually a bit out of Terence's comic play, Eunuchus. There is a scene of flattery that goes on, and Thais is one of these flatterers, well, she is the flatterer or the flattered, as we'll talk about in a minute, inside this scene in the play. But Dante doesn't know Terence. There's a bit of a debate on this, and some people still claim, no, 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 this is straight out of Terence's play. Most scholars now accept that Dante knows nothing of Terence. Instead, what he knows is Cicero. And Cicero is quoting Terence in a passage, quoting this play in a passage, and especially Cicero quotes this passage in order to set it up about flattery. But even if Dante is quoting Terence through Cicero or alluding to Terence through Cicero, he still garbled it. The passage in Cicero is not... (laughs) 
not about Thais being a flatterer. Rather, it's about the person she's talking to flattering her. And Dante seems to have mistaken a subject of the sentence, in truth, did Thais send me many thanks, for evocative. He seems to think that that's a direct address to Thais. It would have been enough to answer many it goes on in Cicero. Millions of them, said the parasite. Well, here's the problem. The person who says millions of them, enough to be a marvel, as Dante retranslates it, is not Thais. That's in the servant Gnatho's mouth. So it's garbled from the original. It's garbled from the Cicero. I've played around and around with this and tried to say that there's some way in which flattery garbles texts or that flattery garbles the sense of things or you can't make sense of passages when in fact you're using those passages to flatter yourself as in Cicero. I have tried and tried and tried and I can't in my head make it work out. You might want to stick there. You might want to say, wow, look at this. In the sins of flattery, flattery is so delusional that it causes you to mistake the intent of classical text and therefore garble the reference. But I don't see that because I see this as part of the narrative of the text itself. And this is where I'm actually coming down to. And I think this is a really important point. Dante gets it wrong straight out. Uh, that's hard for us sometimes to accept. I mean, after all, here sits this poet who is so fabulous. We've spent 109 episodes on just hmm, beyond, a little beyond the first half of Inferno. This poet is beyond compare. I couldn't do this with many other things. I've thought about a podcast after Dante. Is this possible after Dante? On Shakespeare's sonnets one by one, and I could do that. That one could do just like this podcast is doing, slow walking through the sonnets. But honestly, there are very few works that will withstand this amount of scrutiny. But once in a while, it's important to remember that Dante the Poet is a human, and that Dante the Poet is on the run, and that Dante the Poet doesn't have access to the internet and can't look up passages in Cicero as I did for this, that Dante can't do all of that. <laughs> and so, in fact, Dante gets it wrong. And while the larger point about flattery is well said in the passage, and while there's a larger structural matter that we're about to talk about that is important to see, nonetheless, this passage is garbled because Thais was not the flatterer in the original, rather the servant was, and Dante has uh, just mucked up the whole thing out of Cicero, who is himself Torking the passage from Terence, but Dante probably doesn't know that. Your poet is a human, and this is not a divinely inspired poem, no matter what the poet himself thinks. Okay, second speculative point. This entire canto, the 18th, 
is structurally amazing. You know how much I like architecture. And if you go back to that first pouch, think about how that worked out. We saw Venedico, a modern person. Then we saw Jason. Here we see Alessio, a modern person. Then we see Thais, a figure out of classical literature. Notice how that both pouches have both in them. Notice how Virgil takes over at the end of both pouches. Notice how Dante interacts with the modern person. Virgil tends to interact with or over the classical figure. Notice Virgil's incredible adoration for Jason versus his disgust and incredibly vulgar description of Thais. Notice how this structure is being built around us. And you can see, I think here, my point about the developmental hypothesis. That is that this poem is being structurally worked out as it's being written. But I think it's important for me to stop right here and add a caveat to this discussion. I, by developmental hypothesis, I do not mean ad hoc writing or automatic writing. In fact, I got into a discussion with someone in Instagram DMs about this just the other day. No, I don't mean that Dante's just making it up. Rather, Dante is doing what great artists do. As along the way he is writing, it's growing what he's discovering. This is what Faulkner, Shakespeare, Joyce, Wolf, this is what great writers do. They write, and as they write, of course, if you've ever tried this, you know this, as you write or as they write, they begin to discover what the truth of the plot is. What is Clarissa Dalloway? Something about, let's say, the sexuality, as we know in Mrs. Dalloway from her past, about being kissed by a young girl on a porch earlier in her life and her attraction to that girl and that slowly begins to develop in the plot as an undertow in it it is the same way here with dante that is he is growing what he's discovering as he's writing the poem and while this looks very self-consciously structured i would argue that what he's growing here is the nature of structure in the spiny ridge-like system that is the eighth circle of fraud those spiny reef-like ridges that run between the evil pouches, they have helped him understand that structure is incredibly important to this thing. And so we come into fraud, we open fraud in Canto 18 with an incredibly structured Canto. That can't be a mistake. Remember, in this very podcast, I said to you, no, I think that's an overstep. And no, I think that's an overstep in the text. But this one, I don't think so. I think this is absolutely willed. We get a notion of the structure of the eighth circle of fraud, and we get an intensely structured canto with modern figure, classical figure, modern figure, classical figure, Dante, Virgil, Dante, Virgil. We get this incredibly detailed structuring pattern because Dante is thinking, I believe this is supposition, but is thinking structure, right? 
that charismatics, right? So the poem should take on the very structure of the landscape around the poem or, or the landscape that the poem is describing. It should be set as a structural object inside the very structure it's describing, which makes it super meta, which makes it, of course, super attractive to me, which means only that we got to go on and watch what happens next because this structural bit is going to play out even more in the next Canto 19, one of the most commented on cantos of all of Inferno. And no wonder, because in the next Canto, we find a lot of popes. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, Otherwise, stay with me because we are walking on down. And listen, anybody that's brave enough to put a pope in hell is brave enough for me to follow him slowly, step by step, even when he garbles Cicero and Terence. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.